Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them. How to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. In today's Live Free, Ride Free podcast, we talk to my dear friend and I could say mentor, Tim Smith, Sir Tim Smith, in fact, who is the founder of The Eden Project, rainforest under a roof in the west of England and now starting these all over the world and the lost gardens of Heligan one of England's top tourist sites but also just a beautifully whimsical place this is just a little bit of what Sir Tim does he's really at the cutting edge of the movement to bring our planet and our societies into a more ecological and sustainable future without making us feel guilty about what we do without making us feel pessimistic about what we do. In fact, giving us all sorts of good reasons for optimism. And one of the reasons I really love talking to Tim is so often in the environmental movement, we're dealing with doom and gloom and being shamed for what we do or taking airplanes or driving cars. Really, Tim is not coming from this place at all. Tim's giving us really practical ways forward to build this better world. So without further ado, Tim. So Tim, Tell us who you are. Hi, my name is Tim Smith. I am probably the only palindrome you've ever heard of. My name is the same spelt forwards as backwards. And I was born in Holland to a Dutch father and an English mother. Dutch blue collar and English blue blood. And uh, the interesting thing is that I was brought up in a mixture of a two up, two down in the city of Arnhem in East Holland, where my Dutch grandfather was a mill worker and in a stately home in the north of Cheshire in England called Hartford Hall, which was owned by my grandparents. My grandfather was a mill owner. So it was a, a, a rather interesting thing because that, that milling tradition ran heavy, but the social class thing was massive in terms of the difference between the backgrounds of both my parents. And I have to tell you, I learned early on that the two up, two down in Arnhem was a far friendlier, loving place than a cold stately home of an English aristocrat in the north of England. And it was always thus. It's been really interesting because when you're brought up with the social values, which I know you have, Rue and I, I have, which are kind of, I don't know what you call them. They're kind of socialist communist, capitalist, sort of all sort of woven together into a very confusing, you know, dessert. And the thing is that when you've been brought up in that way, I can speak about cricket until the cows come home. I can put on a very posh accent if I need to. I can get on with people who've been to all the good schools and universities. And indeed, I've been to a fairly good school and a fairly good university myself. But the thing that it teaches you when you come from the background of, say, my my Dutch grandfather, is you you get in, in, inoculated. I think if that's the right word, or vaccinated with the thought of of notions of fairness and equity 
and what words like belonging, meaning, community mean. And you develop a kind of ritual with a small s, uh, not related to any religion, but mainly to a way of being philosophy about the world. I was very lucky. I was unlucky enough to be sent to an English prep school at the age of six and a half. And I say unlucky and lucky at the same time. It meant that I had to lead my life because it's quite lonely being a youngster, being sent away like that. And you have to make what, what it teaches you. The English public school system is that you learn how to make acquaintanceships really quickly because they're defensive things. Almost like alliances. Yeah, yeah, they are exactly. They're like alliances because you want to be made safe. You want to have people having your back. And the effect of that is that I think most, look, this is dated. I'm now in my late sixties, but when I was at private school and I, I know it has changed an awful lot since then, there was this sense that you were forging a class of people who had a loyalty to their class because they were all sent away from home rather than to their neighborhood. Um, and it would later shape me by not sending my children to public school because I wanted them to feel that they could play for the local village cricket team and they would be known in the local pub and bakery and they would do scouts and learn to go fishing. You know, all of those things which give you a sense of who you are, a sense of self. So I was very aware, as an observer of, of that class distinction. I was also really aware, having been left on my own for a long time, that my imagination was different to most people. I spent most of my time very happily on my own, imagining whole scenarios. And it was only when I was quite old, I mean, I'm talking about late 30s, that I realized I was a bit of a freak. I, I actually imagine, I, I imagine, and then I imagine the delivery of the imagining. And it, a lot of people say about me that with Eden and Heligan, how odd it is to meet somebody who is a dreamer stroke visionary, which is a rather overrated word, um, who not only can dream these things, but dreams the process of how to deliver them. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the idea of putting one stone next to another and then another. And day after day, you do this until there's a wall and then there's actually a roof and then you've got a building. And I can imagine it all. I can imagine the whole process. And it thrills me, absolutely thrills me. And it's who I am, actually. I've realized that I am, um, my greatest pleasure in life is the kissing of frogs. That's what I realized early on. I love the idea of making things that were not whole complete, making things that were broken, mended, um, making people not unhappy. It leads to a kind of weird thing as well, where you become almost, uh, directed by the desire to create happiness, almost as if your self-definition is through either removing angst or creating moments of, of happiness, um, which could, I think, get interpreted early in your life as a fear of being disliked or wishing to fit in in some strange way. But then later, if you, if you ride that kind of instinct, it turns you into somebody who I think really understands the nature of what makes communities what, what, what a good community is, which is not a new labor line on a map with the people contained within it. It is actually about the relationships. And the older I've got, the more I've realized that everything is to do with relationships and that the biggest job you've got in life, if you're a person like you, Root, or me, you don't realize that it's 80. It only creeps up on you after years. You realize that what you are is an exorcist. You are an exorcist of the notion 
that failure just lives here and is permanently rooted in this space. And there are far too many people who let f f a failure be like a pall on the landscape. And we come in and we give people the idea of things could be better. Things could be, if we do things together, we can make things better and nicer. And you don't have to own all the ideas. You don't have to feel you own much of it, except the, the good spiritedness to actually see the talent in others. And ultimately, I think that is the, the wicked secret that often, especially in males, our vanity gets in the way of being quiet for long enough to listen to things and actually realizing the pleasure of listening and really, really listening and then understanding and then transforming things because you've really understood as opposed to giving people the benefit of your genius. And I see that with middle-aged men the world over. They want to give you the benefit of their genius and insight. And you sometimes wish they would shut the so-and-so up. When did, do you have a memory of the first time you imagined and then also imagined a delivery? Where are you? How old are you? Are you a boy? Where is this? Like all boys and many girls. The first dream would have been of doing the simple things like twigs and leaves and mud and making dams. That would be followed, I think, quite closely by the desire, if you live in nature, rather more than most have the benefit of doing now, but of catching those things which live in the pond and whatever and looking at them and examining them and getting this extraordinary thrill. I mean, I can bring to mind now the thrill of catching a stickleback or yeah. water boatman. And, you know, when you then graduate later on to fishing for, you know, fish that are bigger than sticklebacks, God, that, that, that I remember, you know, getting white bread and putting it in my mouth and get, getting enough saliva on it so that it was pliable and then turning it into a ball of bread and then getting a fish hook and putting it on some line and then throwing it across a pond where the trees were too low to be able to have a fishing rod, was throwing it, but you'd actually put a bit of candle wax on the line so that when it hit the water, the weight of the bread would take the hook down to the bottom, but it wouldn't take all the rest of the line down. It took it down as far as it would go, but then you had the line just lying prone on the surface. And then you'd sit there for ages and suddenly you'd see the line at the end of it start to disappear under the water and you'd know there'd be something big underneath there. It was sucking, it was sucking that bread of yours and your head was just so full of the imagination of what it could be. Of course, in your brain, it was an enormous eel or a tench or carp or something, but just imagine what it was like when you do strike that tension of deciding, am I going to pull it? And am I going to then have the frustration of pulling it out of the mouth or whatever it was? Was it going to catch? And then it catches. And then it, the line bites into your hand and you're just excited as you see a bit of blood on your hand because you've caught something that was big enough to do that. And you're sitting there, you know, underneath the branches and you're pulling this fish in and just fantastic. Those big lipped carp and tench that are amazing. Unlike the eels, which were incredibly glamorous when you caught them, but then when you had to get them off the end of a hook as they writhed and they put their slime all over you as you took them out. Wow, that was, that was the other side of amazing. But it was just great. That whole adventure in nature, that whole sense of the mystery of things that lived below and the things that lived above, hunting for 
you see, I'm 68 now, and then, then it was okay to go hunting for bird's eggs and things like that. And the excitement of finding a nest, you know, the little, little nest with the song thrush eggs in it, and then learning how to blow the egg and creating a collection of bird's eggs. And just learning where the, where you'd find them. And you didn't know you were learning things, did you? I mean, I'm sure you were the same. You, you just suddenly, every day, you just had a bigger picture of the homeland you were walking in. As branches started to have their own history, trees had their own history of things you'd found there, things you'd heard there, things that had disappeared into there. And I loved that sense of a countryside being made, almost filled in like one of those coloring books that what was general essence of treeness became particular trees and you would be able to describe them to your close mates. You know, the tree with the broken, you know, the broken so-and-so, the one with the squirrels right at the top, you know. And I found that absolutely thrilling, discovering a language of direction, place and being that I'd never actually truly had before. But you felt it like, like learning a language. But it's not the same as walking out and while it's actually being in it, it's being in nature. Yeah, uh, uh, is, is what we're talking about, what you're talking about here, um, the shamanic aspect of the hunting and gathering life, which is sort of at the root of every human being, because that's what we are still. And is it also that if you learn to order a natural environment first, does it become then easier? to order non-natural environments that you might want to thrive in or even build? I don't know. I think a lot of questions that you get asked, uh, that one gets asked, you're naturally inclined to lie about. You see, I discovered that, be, you see, humans don't naturally embrace chaos. They also don't really naturally embrace change. Therefore, they cannot believe that their lives have genuinely been as chaotic as they actually have, which means that when they describe their lives backwards, they give it a linearity or a shape that is preposterous, that was never like that. But it, you, you can't believe that you were quite so unfocused. I've lived my life pretty much unfocused, and I can tell you my story now. When I tell my story, I sometimes shock myself the order and intent behind that story and how this internal logic of this extraordinary fellow who did all these things comes to the fore and it looks like you were blessed by some kind of secret um, uh, spell that you were given but actually no it was about it was about embracing chaos and embracing it in a way that you just went with the flow and I decided at the age of 37 very exactly 37, that I was going to embrace going with the flow as you why, talk. Why, why did you, why then and how, yeah, why? I, I had become very bored with my cleverness. I realized any fool can use the trappings of knowing a thing or two to appear as if you worked hard or you had a deep wisdom when in fact you were more like a parrot but were too vain to admit it and your intelligence wasn't particularly striking. Um, and more to the point, you realize something really difficult, which is that you're clever, so you don't actually have to work so hard. So quite a lot of it is about busking. 
You know, what are you doing at 37? What, where are you in life? What are you doing for a living? And what's your road to Damascus moment that says, I'm now sick of being clever, Tim. I want to be go with the flow. Oh, oh, it, it, it was a, a range of things. It wasn't actually a road to Damascus moment. In this, well, there was one road to Damascus moment. I was in a limousine. I'm sorry, I've told you this over a drink together, but um, I was in a limousine in Paris and we had a record with this lady, Louise Tucker, that had been number one for 15 weeks. And I was in the back of this limousine and the radio was playing and it was our song. And when it stopped playing, the next record on that was going to knock our record off a number one spot came on by a lady called Michelle Dorr. And we'd written that as well. And we were big honchos in the music business, as I say, the biggest selling record, except for later live eight, um, in French history. And I felt suddenly bereft. I, I felt as sad as I've ever felt in my life being in the back of this limo, because there's nothing sadder than achieving what you thought you wanted and realizing, you know, what was it? Gertrude Stein said, um, told we getting there is there's no there there. And it felt incredibly arid, like dust in your hands. And I always say to people, beware of chasing something that is a theoretical desire. Imagine it, what it feels like. And actually having all that success and arriving in places without your friends, without your family, the people around you see you as a product. Um, and the thing that you really loved was music. But even that is almost getting stolen away from you because you've become addicted suddenly to the commercial success of the records you had written. And you end up almost like a factory producing music three minutes, 20 seconds long with a sort of kind of weird start and then two verses, a chorus, another verse, two choruses, then a middle eight and then choruses now. Very formulaic. And I decided I wanted to leave. I, I'd had enough. I just knew it's a really weird feeling when you have the chance to have the success you thought you wanted and you to be able to discover that before the end of your life is amazing because you suddenly realize that that is not what you were meant to do. And the truth was, if I'm honest, that I could hold a tune and I'd fallen into being in the music industry because I had a band at university and we were skint, so we were just playing covers and then started to write our own music. And the truth was we were quite good but we weren't very good. We weren't genius. We were quite good so that we could actually have a hit record here and there. And once we'd got a hit record, people would buy our album and whatever, but we weren't the stuff of legend. We, we didn't have that. We had the ability to hold a good tune. And I guess it's a form of, 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 um, vanity, the desire to find the thing that you really are good at as our friend, uh, Ken Robinson. Um, our late Ken Robinson always used to say, happiness is about finding your element, being in your element. And I think that is actually one of the things that you're about, isn't it? It's about the freedom riders, the, 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 the you know, riding to be liberated and the rest of it is, is about finding the music of you as a person. If we're using that analogy of music further, um, it's very interesting. Anybody who listens to this, the five people listening to this podcast eventually, or maybe even 10, if we're lucky, one thing, what you never know. No, you never know. One thing I would advise you to do 
as a moment of incredible insight is to go to a piano, put your foot on the sustain pedal, and then bang every note with your elbows, every note, and then put your head on the soundboard. That will teach you something close to religion as that chaos of all the notes jarring through each other. They go like, like the mouth of a trumpet. They disappear, expanding into the distance of sound. And then suddenly at the end of that, you see this magnificent chord, which is harmonic coming out. It is a really interesting thing that chaos is just disorganized harmony. And that's the only way I've ever seen that you can learn it or understand it in a way that some people get when they are in nature for a long time. And suddenly the chaos of pattern suddenly reveals something bigger to them. It's that sort of thing. I think I, I'm talking in a musical equivalence of your experience of, of shamanic work. But it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a clarity which comes to you almost by allowing it to catch you by surprise from the side of your eye. You know I mean, not, not as a direct view. I've got a question then. How do you, how do you go from a boy who's um, ordering nature and fascinated in love with it, climbing the trees to find the bird's eggs, um, how do you go from there to, be, to music? What's the link? Oh, I'd always played Ever since <clears throat> at the time, each time I was at my English grandparents' house at Hartford Hall, they had a huge grand piano. Um, I'm trying to remember what the make of it, a Broadwood, I think it was. And um, no one in the family played. And from the age of two, I just played it. I just, I was. Were in the family? Up. Was your mum musical? Was your dad musical? Was somebody musical? Uh, my dad, my dad could, um, uh, play sort of pub piano, three or four tunes or something like that, um, which he'd been taught by my grandmother, Dutch grandmother. My mother loved music, but didn't play. No, I just, I just sat down. I mean, there are lots of pictures of me as a two, two and a half year old, right through sitting at the piano with a pair of dungarees on, um, just picking out notes. I was absorbed by notes. I had zero interest. I was given piano lessons and I did piano up to grade five, but I had absolutely zero interest in it. I did it because I was told to do it. And that was the only way I could get at the piano when I went up to the public school. I was only interested in composing <clears throat> and it's still the same for me. I love listening to the music of other people. But if you said to me, would you like to join a Beatles cover band? It'd be, I'd prefer to drill my teeth. It's it, not, and I love the Beatles, but I, I, that's not the point I'm making. For me, music was a form of therapy and I could, I, I, from a really young age, I could play the piano to the degree where if I was feeling a bit blue, I could actually play it in such a way that, you know, 20 minutes later I was in a merry mood and I've always loved music for that. And I've always loved the repetitive nature of sometimes just being on my own, playing chords with very little variation and sort of almost in a mental trance, just going round and round and round. And the luxury of being able to do that for yourself is just gorgeous. And that's one of the good things about having a bigger house and a keyboard and occasionally a headphone, if you want to, is that you can just do that repetitive playing time after time, which pleases you, even if it drives everybody else nuts. 
you know, um, and uh, so I've always been like that. I've always treated piano as being something which had a kind of spiritual force for me, but it was almost medical. You know, it was like a health thing. I needed to do it. I needed to play. And yeah, I, need I know what you mean. I, I have the same thing with horses. It's a compulsion. Yeah. So there you are. All right. But so then, okay. Question number two then. So you're, you, you, you discover music very young. You're also discovering nature. And then through college, you have this band, the band becomes successful or the band morphs into another band that's successful. Uh, oh, the, band, the band? band morphed into another, another band that uh, we, we came down from Durham where we, it was the punk boom and we had a great PA and we rented it out and made quite a lot of money doing that, but we weren't that good. We went to London thinking we would make our fortunes in punk. And, sorry? In punk. No, we were actually unbelievably complicated. We were more on the, um, uh, the Mark Knopfler end of things, the Dar Straits end, but not were as prog rockers. Were you Genesis and that or yeah, commercial? Yeah, yeah, you, you were kind of slightly affected, um, poets with an attitude with electric, electric sounds and stuff, but it wasn't like heavy metal or anything. It wasn't quite Genesis. It and it wasn't, wasn't the Smiths. It was. To be honest, we weren't like anything else. Mm. What yes, was the name the, of the band? That band was called The Shake, as in The Shake of Araby. Okay. But anyway, we didn't last very long once we reached London, because London is a brutal place, and it's not a very good place to build a music career, to be honest, because you get there, the few clubs and pubs that you can play in, it's pay-to-play, you know, they bring your own audience. Whereas when you got to Cornwall, I mean, what's amazing, my young son, he formed a band and in four years between the age of 14 and 18, he'd saved bloody nearly 20,000 quid because they pay really well in the pubs and clubs down here. Um, and so we decided to become songwriters and I was also a minicab driver because the songwriting wasn't making us any money. And on Sundays we'd play football. Um, down Clapham Common, and one day I kicked a guy in the opposing team and someone said, Christ, do you know who you, you've just kicked? And I said, no idea, mate. And he said, that's Pat Stapley. He's the lead sound engineer at Abbey Road Studios. So I said, hell no. I pulled him up. And uh, anyway, we would become firm friends. And of course, as you know, if you're an engineer in a studio, you get the ability to use what's called dead time if it's not being booked for money, provided you've got an engineer, you use it and the deal is that you, if you have the benefit of a bit of luck, you then pay a percentage of your luck back to the studio. And, uh, anyway, we, we did this and it was terrible because we were working late at night because that's when usually the dead, dead time is. And I had my first child with my wife and, um, it got to our, the good bit was we'd got five record deals back to back. With a bit of money, which meant that we were able to pay the studio bit and as all the songwriters or as a band, as songwriters. Okay. Um, and we created the bands ourselves. They were kind of like, um, yeah. stop water make and that sort of thing. We were finding people to sing on these songs and, um, anyway, rather unbelievably, which is something which happens to me a lot. The very first night that we felt that we could get babysitters for me and the wife to go out. We went out and we had my sister-in-law babysit and she asked whether she could bring a friend called Louise Tucker, who was studying opera at the Guildhall. 
and we came back from a night out and obviously we were being polite and having small talk and Louise gave me a card and said, if you ever need an opera singer, call me. At that time, I would, it never occurred to me I'd ever want to work with an opera singer. But completely unbelievably, the following day, we go to Abbey Road and the singer that we'd booked to sing on this song we'd already recorded, um, phoned in Hill. And this is before mobile phones, right? So I only had the phone numbers of three other singers, all of all of whom were out, and I still had in my top pocket the card of this woman that I'd met the night before. And I asked her, I mean, I was dreading it. I just didn't want to waste the studio time by not using it, but I thought it was going to be terrible. So she came and she did a duet with my music partner, Charlie, and extraordinarily, four weeks to the day after that studio session, the record went number one in Belgium, then Holland, then Scandinavia, then Germany. What was the name of the record? It was called Midnight Blue. And that record in the album sold 7 million copies. It was the most extraordinary thing. Why um, did it do so good in Europe? And do we know of it in the UK? Do we know of it in yeah, the US? What, what, what's the story there? It's the top 20, but not the top 10. Uh, basically, it was um, a record based around the Beethoven ditty his fifth, um, and we wrote a verse for it and a chorus, and it was a duet, it was a love song, and we filmed it in Gothic. The video was Gothic in terms of Louise wearing sort of black velvet, having black, cold, cold eyes and curly black hair, so she looked very glamorous, being filmed with white horses with a full moon and a dark, dark lake. You can imagine the sort of thing. And they financed this. This is a record company had already given yeah. a deal. Arista, Arista. Uh, yeah. uh, and then when it went to France, it went bonkers, absolutely bonkers. And it was great. And we had a, a good two years selling a lot of records. Uh, in the middle of that, I had the experience of being in the back of that limousine, which depressed me beyond endurance. And I decided to leave. Um, wasn't instant, but I, I then bought a house us in Cornwall again, completely random. I was leading my life random already. And um, we were on holiday. It was raining. I walked into an estate agent. I saw a house for sale. I said, let's, I want to see that house. The estate agent said, sir, won't like it. We went to see it. We lived in Brixton and this is 280 miles from Brixton. And we drove there the following day and it was, because it was pouring with rain. And then this tractor moved across us. And I had to stop and this guy came out in a waterproof and I were up, what, I wound down the window and he said, here old buck, what are you doing here? And I said, um, he's me. Sorry. Okay. Hey, <laughs> that again, so I'm probably have to cut that out. A tractor stops you. Can you yeah, see the, the guy down? And I said, look, this is really embarrassing because we haven't got an appointment, but the house is, um, uh, there's a house at the end of this road, I believe. And we just wanted to have a look and see whether we liked it. And the guy said, well, happen. It's my house. Can I have a cup of tea? So we went and had a cup of tea. The kids then disappeared into the hay barns. And two and a half hours later, I shook his hand and said, I was going to buy it. So I arrived, we arrived in Cornwall about six weeks later. It was an incredible quick turnaround. And I basically gave up the music industry. I was going to record music for films and things a little bit, but I, I, I actually wanted to have a new life. And what happened was again, by this time, I'm leading my life by pure serendipity. I 
was almost thinking we spent all the money I'd made in the music industry on this house and doing it up. It was a money pit. And we were at the verge, Candy and I, of, of actually going bankrupt. We spent everything. I, I went to the dentist. This is how my life is. I went to the dentist and in the dentist's waiting room in Tregony in Cornwall was a current copy of The Stage magazine. You don't expect to have a magazine that's younger than two years old in a dentist. And there it was. And I opened it up and it opened up really randomly or, obviously, or I don't know, but it opened up on a picture of the footballer, Jack Charlton holding a very big salmon. And it said underneath it, Jack Charlton is to make a big TV series for ITV called Go Fishing. And we're looking for music. Now, about five or six years before that, very drunk in a studio in um, Farnham, I had written a song with my mates. Um, we'd been drinking cider in the studio. We'd done something serious before. And one of the guys was um, a banjo player. So I wrote this song, which was a, it was a complete set of puns about fishing. You know, I can't salmon up the energy. This isn't the time and the place, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it had this chorus, which went, go fishing, go fishing, you know, and, and, and whatever. So I sent the cassette of this thing, which would be a complete joke record off to the, ra the um, uh, film company. And they got back to me literally by return and, um, said, we love this music. We, this is going to be our theme tune if you let us. And by the way, have you written any more music? Because we've got no backing music for any of the other parts of the six series. So it bailed me out of potential bankruptcy in one go. Isn't that weird? I'd written the Jake record. The father even kept a cassette. That was all I had left was a cassette of it. Um, and you so had like, loved fishing as a boy. I'd loved had You had spent hours there touching whatever spirits of the river um i know who were clearly waiting to uh, reward you all right brilliant so so that bailed me out i was wondering whether i needed to go back to university and learn a skill or whatever because i we now had enough money to pay to finish the house but i didn't have a job and i wasn't going to go back into music um and i couldn't expect to have lucky breaks like that all the time anyway i met this bloke who drove up in a van um, and he had a trailer behind it and he said in the, in this trailer is a pig. I'm either going to draw it, take it to the slaughterhouse to become sausages, or you can have it as a pet because I know that you've got a garage that hasn't got a car in it. We could easily turn it into a place for a pig to stay. So that's how I was introduced to Horace. So Horace came to stay and Horace had a very powerful nose and he decided he didn't like the garage, despite the fact he had plenty of space. He broke into the farmhouse and would then warm his butt on the arger. And I'd talk to him. And then eventually I realized um, that he needed a mate. So through the local newspapers, I found another black pig. And we got hold of Doris. And Horace just fell hopelessly in love um, with Doris. And from that moment on, they just lived in the barn. He was happy in the barn now. And I'd fill it up with hay and... They were very clean. They were crapped in the same place and what have you. And, um, you say black pigs, is this a local breed? No, they wasn't. They were, they were actually Vietnamese pot bellies. Okay. Um, and, um, 
hideously ugly. They look as if they've run at great speed into a wall. Mm. Um, and uh, anyway, in the November of 1989, I think, um, Doris gave birth to 11 baby piglets under a heat lamp in thick straw. Um, and this is two in the morning. Thinking, how am I going to educate all these pigs? I'm going bankrupt. How am I going to bring them up? Yeah, exactly. But I saw it as a sign that I was meant to start a rare breed park. Most people don't do that, but I did. So I went to hunt for a place that could be a rare breed park and there was some land and I phoned up the guy who owned Why the rare land. breeds from a not rare breed? Or are Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs? And I thought, I love this. So a lot of people will love it. You see, one of the things I learned from the music industry, which anybody who's looking for a steer in life is if you're not a freak and you love something, there will be millions of people like you. The issue is simply marketing. Mm. You know about it. That's a really valuable piece of information. It is a very valuable piece of information. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, I've got very sensitive lips and I went to see the guy who owned the land that I thought could be a rare breed park. He gave me a very hot cup of coffee, but told me instantly I couldn't have the land because he just rented it to somebody else. I had to make small talk with him. And as I made small talk, as I, as the coffee cooled down for me to drink it, I told him that I had studied archeology span at university. And he then said to me, the immortal words, I have need of an archeologist, which I couldn't believe. And anyway, the following day we broke into what was this huge estate that he'd inherited. But he had no money. He didn't, his, his, uh, a, a distant, no, his uncle had died childless, leaving this estate. The house had been turned into flats long ago, but the garden had been fenced off because uh, the majority of the gardeners uh, that had worked there were killed in Flanders in 1915-16. And the owner was so sad, he just fenced it off and went to live in his Italian house and never returned. Now, when you say a garden, those listeners who are knowing you for the first time, um, particularly perhaps in America, we're not talking about a backyard here with a privacy fence. Um, what describe this garden? Well, the garden in total is in total about 70 acres of gardens with about a hundred acres of woodland forest and 200 acres of home farm. And how you break into this? What does that mean? Where well, is we, we, it? Is we it have, not just there to walk into? How do you break into it? No, well, the hedges that had been planted all those years ago had now become trees and you just couldn't get through. So we had to take machetes and cut our way in. And then in the so end, it's basically like a Cinderella castle of thorns. You've just got a wall yeah, of yeah. thorns in front of you. Yeah. That's not even, that's not exaggerate, not exaggerating at all. And the bloke says behind this wall of thorns is an enchanted land. Do you want to? chop your way into it with me. Is that basically what he says? Well, no, he said, you're an archeologist. You'll be able to understand what you're looking at better than I. Um, and I didn't and what is behind this, 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 this wall of thorns. Yeah. But quite quickly, we discovered what was behind it because there were enormous palm trees and rhododendrons in the, that were way, I mean, the, the brambles themselves are about 15 feet high. Um, but, um, I cut my way through with John and I just fell hopelessly in love with it. I, I, I broke into a, a greenhouse after finding a wall with a, a door painted green with it, the paint flaking and the rust was staining the wood, you know, where the, um, 
hinges were, and I put my shoulder to it to go in, and there was this greenhouse that I cut my way through very gingerly because all the wood had rotted out, so the glass was hanging like guillotines above it. And um, in there, the light broke in a very, very funny way, and I suddenly saw these scissors on the wall. And it's a bit like one of the 1970s paintings, you know, dots, where suddenly you see an elephant in the middle of the dot. It was like that. Suddenly I saw tools everywhere. I saw terracotta everywhere. And I fell in love. And the following day, I said to John, who owned it, I haven't got the money to take this off your hands, but what I'll do is I'll do a music business contract with you. You give me this estate for nothing. And if I can get it open to the public inside two years, you'll let me have it. And I'll be able to rent it off you into the future. And I will pay you um, 20% of whatever I charge net of VAT to the public. And that's how it all began. And I knew that to be famous, I needed press. And I was always been good with press. And I got the BBC hooked by telling them that I had found the finest, most romantic garden in Britain. And it was going to be called the Lost Gardens of Heligan. And I was going to give them one day to make up their mind whether they were going to come and film it. If they weren't, I was going to go somewhere else. How did you, you say you got, what, who did you call? Why did you have someone who you could call? And why would that person take your call? I've always been socially pretty adept. So I had a pretty decent address book and I knew. Your music biz, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But the guy I called was the producer for Stefan Buczatsky, who was a bit of a rock god for garden um, films and he was on, um, gardens world and they came in and made a special and it won the award in 91 for best documentary of the year. And it was very mysterious. I, you see, gardens had never been treated the way I treated them. I wanted it to be very rock and roll. I wanted to even put dry ice down when people were filming. I wanted to, I knew that if people came to Heligan looking at it through my eyes, they would fall in love. And that's what actually happened. So the restoration wasn't about restoring it to a Royal Horticultural Society or Nat National Trust Act. I wanted to capture the very spirit of lostness, which would make people feel the gentle ebb and flow of melancholy. Because melancholy is the sexiest thing in the world. Happy Clappy is nowhere close. And I wanted Heligan to be a place which was at its absolute finest in a, in a gentle drizzle. Um, and that's how it's become. The Lost Gardens of Heligan are the most romantic gardens in Britain. We've won award after award, the most, uh, the nation's favorite garden, the national treasure, according to Radio 4. But the thing I'm most proud of is that more than 400 people have chosen to have their ashes scattered there. And I think that's a tremendous thing. That's a, a real, uh, a real accolade to the team that have restored it. But you know, the weirdest thing after all this time is in my ancient age now, I can see, uh, it doesn't belong to me. I'm a steward, a complete steward. And it's such privilege. And I go around it now as a punter. I got no sense of ownership. I mean, literally I don't have a sense of ownership because I gave away uh, the company that runs it to my children about six months ago. Um, but I think it was necessary to put it in younger hands keep it going, get them to understand the fact that it's a privilege to be a steward of it. It's not a vehicle for making money. It's a vehicle for creating livelihoods. We have a hundred people that work there 
and it revolutionized the whole economy of the local village. You see, we were the first place in Cornwall that ever asked a very simple question. Is Cornwall empty in winter because nothing is open? Or is nothing open because people, uh, the, 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 or, or do not people not come because nothing is open? So we decided to open all year round. And to everybody's astonishment, people came all year round. And suddenly pubs and restaurants opened and things got renewed and galleries opened. And all over Cornwall, people suddenly woke up as if, you know, they had a kiss. You know, the Sleeping Beauty was awoken. And the effect of that would lead fairly shortly at the end of 94. We opened to the public in on um, Good Friday, 1992. And we were about a third of the way through the restoration. And people were coming to watch us do the restoration. And they would come and we'd give them tools and they'd help us. They'd pay to come in and then do the work. It was brilliant. And we had a tea room cafeteria that was an old goat shed. Um, and our restaurant is still the skeleton of that old goat shed today. Uh, we built it out a bit, but that's actually its roots. And we pioneered all sorts of things. I, I used metal detectors to find the old plant named Nevels, which meant that we could restore many of the productive walled gardens. Uh, by finding the original plants that were named on these uh, copper uh, zinc labels by washing them with warm water and then putting olive oil in, in, on it and the Indian ink would react. Is it brilliant? It's absolutely brilliant. I can't tell you the fun of doing a project like that. And we would go, like we went to a Methodist chapel and we bought the chapel in order to take all the floor the floorboards, the joists, the roof, the roof slates and everything. So when you come to Heligan, a restoration that would probably cost 20, 25 million to do. We did it for about half a million. We, all our volunteers and everybody, we were just sniffing about finding things. And that is actually where the joy of life is. It's actually realizing that amazing things can be done and they don't need to cost the earth. That actually what you need is the energy to do it. Um, and then another documentary was made, which followed us for two series. It was two 10 part documentaries on channel four. And that kind of enshrined Heligan as being the most popular garden in Britain. And after us, sorry, the one, the last thing I ought to say is that we wanted to tell the whole story because going back to my childhood, and I told you about my background of my grandparents who were of different social classes. What I found amazing was that Heligan had these walled gardens and a vegetable garden and some little, um, and some little walled gardens as well. And I said, I want to tell the story of the ordinary men and women who made these, these gardens great. But the National Trust and um, the, RG, uh, the Royal Horticulture Society were far too posh. posh. They, the, the garden visitors, they're not going to be interested in working men and women. And that's absolutely extraordinary. At the moment that we opened to the public, at that day that we opened, there were no working gardens in Britain open to the general public vegetable gardens, not one, the great vegetable garden that had been at Chatsworth in Derbyshire, um, the Devonshire's house, they had bulldozed their walled gardens because they were no longer fashionable. Tatton Park, which was the National Trust's most famous walled garden, that was also completely gutted. And the National Trust was very slow witted. And when we, uh, when the public started to go bonkers, they decided, Christ, maybe we missed a trick and they started to restore some. But they didn't understand it. It's kind of like 
a, it was kind of like class certainty devoid of intelligence. So the first walled garden they restored, they found bricks that had moss on them. So they looked all romantic, which is crazy because any head gardener who was worth his weight or her weight would never have allowed moss on a brick or anything like that. So what they were trying to do was to do that kind of shabby chic, you know, to give you some kind of thing. It was completely fake and they didn't know where to get the vegetable varieties from. For us, we were just like pirate kings. We, 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 we would travel all over the country to meet people who had allotments that had kept seeds going that their grandparents had had and whatever. So we started to build up this body of um, what were called heirloom and heritage vegetables. And slowly but surely, we started to get the whole place properly productive and then we had to make it. So see, the thing is that when you look at all the posh magazines, they, they're just lying to you all the time. Their lifestyle choice, a bit of a drizzle of this on your food. Do they not realize the pure genius, the unadulterated genius of these walled gardens in an age before refrigeration? April was called the dying month because it was too early to have the vegetables ready for the next year and too late to have anything left from the previous year. But the great horticulturists knew how to create clamps for potatoes and some of the vegetables to keep them cool enough so that they didn't go off. They knew which apples to grow that perhaps didn't taste the best, but actually they had the ability to stay sweet until right the end of March, beginning of April. So what you were looking at was an incredible act of applied science. Um, and that's always stayed with me. Uh, the notion that, that, that how is it possible that a, a, a basically a smug middle class has allowed the traditions of great horticulture to die and pretend that it's the third thickest child or the third thickest child that is a gardener or horticulturist? It's absolutely not true. And the future we're going to see is going to see an awful lot of young people, your young people, my young people, go back to the land, go back to interest in food production go back to realizing that many of these old varieties were called heirloom varieties because uh, big agriculture wanted them to sound quaint, not current, so that you bought their types. The truth is, there isn't an apple that has been bred over the last 50 years that's actually very good for you. That saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, is absolutely true for the old varieties that are still around because they're full of what are called phenols, which are very powerful antioxidants. And I think, I think the generations coming through, and I meet so many young people who come to work for us and who want to do their own allotments or even small holdings or the, the, the market garden which used to be popular, remember? And it's really interesting how the conversations are going about, can we produce food and drink that's actually really good for your health? I mean, really good for your health. Um, so that, you know, your, 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 internal biome, you know, the bacteria and in your insides are actually encouraged to really go for it. And so, and so I'm really excited. I hope you can tell I'm really excited about all of those discoveries, all of which were made accidentally. And I think could only have been made by somebody who knew nothing. I think the excitement was that for me, it was like a Sherlock Holmes adventure to try and find all the ingredients of this story, the narrative arc, if you like. And then I realized that everybody was so smug, they thought it was known. And then it wasn't, it was all about to get lost. And so the lost gardens of Hedigan became symbolic, not only of it having been lost, but also the lost 
varieties and techniques and so on that also were going. And so I've been really thrilled doing that. And that would in turn inspire me to think, well, we started to tell stories at Heligan that did not have lots of Latin because I didn't, I wasn't a horticulturist. So I'd ask people like, why do leaves curl? And they get so annoyed when I asked them to dumb down, dumb down, dumb down until they were basically telling me a nursery story. And I said, wow, that's great. And I would then tell people at dinner parties and they go, wow, really? That's great. And I suddenly realized, let's tell stories to everybody that comes and say, wow, that's great. So we told really simple stories and people got very excited. And I thought, what, what imagine, what, what happens if we find the equivalent of, um, like a crater of a volcano? You know, and in that volcano, like in Conan Doyle's Lost Worlds, it's where you've got this lost civilization. And we would gather all of the really important plants in the world together there to tell people about how dependent we are on the natural world. And that's why I decided to do the Eden Project and gathered a team around me and we built um, Eden with a whole bunch of volunteers to start with. And then we raised a lot of money through the lottery banks. Overall, it got about 144 million pounds, but it's blinking great. It's designed on principles that were invented originally by Buckminster Fuller, who's my hero, the Bucky Balls, the strongest structures on earth when they're fully built and the weakest structures on earth until the last moment of their being built. And we created 90,000 tons of soil and we opened to the public on St. Patrick's Day to celebrate all of the Irish builders who'd made this possible because we built it on time, on budget. And the other thing that's great is we don't allow advertising on site because we want people to understand and read the landscape as why a wild place, even where it's nurtured in a, in a husbanded way. But we wanted people to just have one place where they weren't being sold to, where you didn't have QR codes, where you didn't have buy such and such a coffee. So. Anyway, Eden is a really good place. We've had, you get about a million visitors a year. We've put nearly two billion pounds worth into the local economy out of opening it. And we built it starting in 1994. The idea we opened, as I say, St. Patrick's Day 2001, took us actually two years of building. But the amazing thing is today, all the things we were championing then have become fashionable. And now we're, we are big from our. I mean, we've got 17 big projects around the world, around a billion quid's worth of construction contracts. I mean, they're not all signed up and ready and working, but I'm actually becoming more and more interested, not in the testosterone laden signature architecture, but in the regeneration of places. So we're working in places like Eastbourne on the South Downs, uh, Derby in the middle of Derby, which is falling to bits, uh, in Derry in Ireland on the banks, um, of the river there and so on. And with Dundee, you will have seen in the papers, we recently got um, a lot of government funding who are going to partner us to do a project in Morecambe. But basically all of this is about storytelling. Everything is about storytelling. And these are all old, no longer fashionable, falling down what it, people in England would call crap towns. Yeah. Um, and then what they need is an exorcist and yeah. that's it. And we come and we tell them, you think this is crap? It's wonderful. And yeah. you know, the, well, the most amazing thing about your town is you, the people. Yeah. And the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Stories and, 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 and creating groups of people, a crew, wherever you go, people are just not expecting people like us with our background to actually listen. 
Just listen. Don't give them the benefit of our genius to regenerate their town. Help create a story in which they regenerate their town and you fill in some gaps where you can help. And the biggest task is to make humans realize what is possible. And that's why Eden is really powerful because we have done big things that everybody said was impossible. We've done deep geothermal. We've dug 5.3 kilometers down and uh, we got 187 degrees centigrade water coming out the ground. And everybody said we couldn't do it. The government said we couldn't do it. Scientists said we wouldn't do it. We have done it. And to anybody listening, you know, probably coming to the end of this, but anybody listening is, do not believe the establishment that ama amazing things cannot be done. Because when you look at our nation, I would put to you, we're living amongst a whole bunch of people that are ill, but we don't know it. And that illness is a collective PTSD. And that PTSD is because we aspire to so much, whether you're formally religious or not. We know that we're living in a country where it's equity, where it's social values and care are being honored almost in their being ignored. We know that. To say that again. We, we, we know that every child instinctively should have an equal opportunity to an education. We okay. believe it is wrong to allow children and adults to be hungry, to not have a roof over their heads and so on. There's a whole long litany of things that we know. We know that it's cravenly weak to allow companies to poison our water and think that you're unbusinesslike or you're not a proper capitalist if you complain about it. This is rubbish. We've created a world of lies. It should be treason, nothing less than treason, to poison the water that we have to drink and our future children will have to drink and onwards. The same with poisoning the air, the same with making our soil infertile, and the same with making the richness and variety of life less so. These are just a few of the things I believe, but I think one of the things is to teach yourself to be unreasonable at all times and to not allow other people to write your story it is quite possible to be a capitalist but to have a moral compass to be fair in all things to be kind to be generous to be a capitalist only means that you gather things and resources together to enable something bigger to take place to be honest and if you get to that place you're in a very good place and i i have a dream that we can make a country in which people can dream of aspiring to achieving these things. Our, our dreams are too small. So our one of our jobs is to make dreams bigger, much, much bigger. And you're looking beyond the UK now, right? So Eden, you're doing Edens in other countries. Yeah, what we do in Dubai. Okay. Why? Why are you doing Dubai? And, and is that ecological? Is it ecological to put a rainforest under a, a roof in Dubai or is it actually taking loads of resources or what or what, what? Well, and we and didn't China, you're doing China as well, right? I believe. Uh, yeah, but so, we didn't put we didn't put a rainforest under a, a, a roof in Dubai. We built like a steampunk, um, a steampunk cartoon ecstasy in environmental science, and it was the most popular thing at Expo. It was really, really cool, and. My son, Sam, who's the creative manager for Eden, he came up with all these things that like the first thing you saw as you went in was 
some questions. Would you rather kill the last panda and nobody knows you did it? Or would you rather not kill the last panda, but everybody thinks you did it? And he's done about 30 questions like that. And to go into a place which is unlike any science institution you've ever seen, with families just talking and arguing and berating each other for what they've said that they believe in or whatever. Yeah, I think every, every, every thing that Eden, every Eden that we do has got to be a prov provocation. What's the point? We we're not in the business of doing theme parks. We're in the business of, of creating hope, entertainment, and the sense of possibilities. The thing that I really want to, people to feel for it from Eden is that the future still does remain ours to make. It's not too late. We can still do amazing things if we organize ourselves around various principles and speak truth to power. Speak truth to power. Look, I've taken up far too much of your time, but the last thing, what I'm about to tell you is you probably have to pay 10,000 pounds just to hear what I'm about to tell you. It will be so valuable in your life. It's worth everything else I've said up to this moment put together. And probably a hundred times more than that. If you really, really want to change your life and have an exciting life and taste the unexpected, accept every third invitation you receive. That does not mean you don't accept the first, but it does mean you accept the third and you don't give yourself a get out of jail card unless it clashes with a really important domestic obligation like a birthday or anniversary. The reason for that is that most people think they are thinking beings, but most people are sheep. Most people carry a weight of what they call thought, which is the clothing of people like them of their social class or gleaned from the pages of magazines they deem to be of their social class. And they've built up because they're taught they have to have a view. It is not possible to have a view on all the subjects we've all got views on. Before you wonder, I don't exonerate myself from this. I'm just really interested in my own prejudices and how I come to have them. How come I'm against nuclear? How come I'm against this? And you suddenly realize the shallow-minded waffle brain that you are because you didn't know enough. Therefore, it was easy and comfortable to do. Oh, some people I admire against nuclear. You know what I mean? So you build up this whole picture. Now, when you accept the third invitation, you are surrounded by people you did not intend to meet. You didn't intend to meet them. And I've learned this incredibly valuable fact, which is that an awful lot of middle-class people believe that going to university or anything else is, or going to a really smart public school is so that you meet the people you need to meet. People, the thing I've realized that this is a lie. Genius is not created by meeting the people you need to meet. It's caused by meeting the people you didn't know you needed to meet. It's people it never occurred to you that you would need to meet, so you wouldn't have searched for them. And there you are, stuck at a social event. I've had to open old people's homes. I've judged dog shows, cat shows, pet shows of every description. I've opened uh, surgeries. I've, I, I, I've championed gardens of every description. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of events and almost every life-changing professional event that I have ever attended has been the third invitation. 
Why that yeah. number? Why not, why not take them all? Why not do them all? And just be open to everything. Because I'm also open to loving my family mm. during a life. I don't want to be out every night. Mm. I, I, when you do something public, like I do, I could be out every single night and I don't want to be, but I do to leave myself open to the potential for chaos, the mm. potential for the completely unexpected. And Eden would not be there today were it not for me doing that. Because one of the things I went to that I would never have gone to, one of the people in the audience heard me talk and later on he happened to be in a room in the middle of Plymouth. He had been the chairman of Somerset County Council and he'd be present in this Nissan hut in the middle of nowhere. And Eden was not going to get its money. And then he stood up and he said, gentlemen, ladies, I was present at listening to this man speak in a Nissan hut near Taunton. He so obviously loves the West Country, not just the narrow confines of Cornwall. And we in Somerset will drop one of our projects so the Eden Project can go ahead if you all drop one each. Claps of Stout Party, that one night to 50 people and a dog was worth 12.7 million pounds. There you are. Let's yeah. finish the interview there. That's the most valuable thing that your listeners can ever hear. The idea of getting beyond one's prejudices which it seems that life forces upon one if one's lucky um but we always go into it kicking and screaming um you are now in this exorcism business of exorcising unhappiness um much of which is coming from people's uh, divorce from the natural world, which is where we started with you, um, by the side of rivers and climbing trees, um, and then into music and then back into nature again. Ecology, as you say, it's all becoming fashionable now. We are no longer the hippie margin, um, with the mainstream. What's the single biggest thing we all get wrong about ecology? That's easy. The biggest thing we get wrong is believing that people who call themselves environmentalists are people who do recycling and all of the things that actually have a social cachet. The evidence screams at us that there is a complete disconnect between people who want to do what they think is environmentally friendly behavior and understanding ecology and the desire to protect biodiversity. Those that do all that recycling do not be confused. It is a desire conform with society. I am a civilized person. That's why I'm recycling. I don't want to be seen as being primitive, but our connection to wishing to protect the natural world is the biggest battleground there is for humans at the moment, because reality is competing on several different formats, several different canvases ranging from say middle-class kids with, with, um, tablets and so on. Their reality of their screen is every bit as real as the tab, as the when you move the tablet this way, what they're seeing there is just another form of this thing. Um, and there's a lot of complicated stuff in there about what does nature, nature inspired education mean? And an awful lot of people who are worthy, I think don't understand what it takes, what emotional hooks, levers are necessary to get people engaged in the natural world. It's about touching, smelling, 
mud between your toes, so to speak. It's not by just walking outside and seeing the trees. We've gone for a walk. I think you can do that for the rest of your life and it still won't affect you. It needs to mean something to you. It means to mean that you are understanding you are creaturely. And bearing in mind creatureliness, I have a guest for supper. And at this rate, I won't have any supper cooked for them at all. One last thing then. Can people learn to do what you do when you imagine not just the thing, but the delivery of the thing? This seems to have come to you naturally. Is this a muscle that one can actually exercise? Is it part of your formula for accepting every third invitation? Is that part of the exercising of that muscle? In fact, to find the mechanisms for doing that. But is this a skill that people can learn how to dream the dream and then formulate and deliver the dream? Yes, you can learn. The thing is, most people find organizing themselves a complete mystery. They don't understand the levers of the order of events. They don't understand how to put a narrative arc to work. My ex, um, Gay, who was my joint chief executive with me for a long time at Eden, she coined a great phrase. The secret is to dare to dream and organize to deliver. And I think one of the, the things I know is I mentor a lot, quite a lot of people and I am just struck how people that are really smart just don't know how to put one brick on top of another. They don't know the order of how to deliver dreams. And when you start to show people the order of doing things, they go, wow, wow, that's amazing. I get so many people who send me their business plan for doing something and I go, you know what? You've got one really good idea in here and you've now hung about a dozen other things around it because you, you think you need to have an education program and of this and that. Just do what you're good at. Do what you're good at. Stop trying to do what you think other people will think you're cool for doing. Do the thing you're good at. So many people lie, live that they, they, they waste their lives away by trying to be something they're not. If you're really brilliant at one thing, just do that thing. Brian Clough, my, my football manager hero, who was used to say that, he said, I don't, didn't pay you a lot of money to tackle back. You're rubbish at tackling back, but you're the best crosser of the ball, ball in the world. I just got to make the guys who can tackle back work even harder to give it to you so you can then cross the ball. And I think that's a really big secret of life. Just understand what you're good at. And then the next bit, if you have a dream, is to then start understanding the bits that you're not good at. I knew when I built Eden, I knew when I did Heligan, that my temperament, the way I speak, would not encourage bank managers. I knew the more that I was fantastical, the more their eyes were with me, their hearts were with me and their brains were shutting the wallet because they knew that they would look foolish supporting somebody who was a dreamer. Therefore, I knew the secret was to have on my right shoulder, somebody who understood business brilliantly and could use jargon of business to impress them. And on my left shoulder, I needed someone who'd built amazing things elsewhere. So they said, here is a dreamer who really does understand what's needed. Masterminds, teams, mm. who can do what I cannot do? How do I 
back to the alliances. How do I make alliances with those people to deliver the dreams? And if we're lucky, perhaps there's friendships along the way too. Yeah. Well, there's one last story I'll share with you, which is my daughter is, is very smart, who you know, Laura. We were looking at creating a place for children to come and play, right? We, we own, as you know, the shipwreck center in uh, Charlestown. And she said, dad, do you know what you're doing? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm looking at how we can build a brilliant place for kids. She said, yes, it'll go bust dad. And I said, what, what? I said, do you not know I'm a genius at what I do? She said, yeah, but you just don't understand what you've got to build is nothing to do with kids. You're building a place where mums do not feel guilty having some time to themselves, a place that's safe for children and interesting enough to keep them occupied, but you will have high-speed Wi-Fi and really good coffee and cake so they can see their kids and have some time to themselves. You're building a respite place for parents. You're not building a playground for kids. And I thought, wow, that is so insightful. So listen to the young, listen to those who speak truth to your power. Yeah. When it resonates, act. Yeah. Stick to what you're good at. Well, well no, no, before you said, I did say that, stick to what you're good at. But what I was, I think I, to be more accurate, it should be stick to where your instincts are telling you to go. Ah. Uh -huh which is different. So at Heligan, I knew nothing about plants, did I? But I knew everything about romance and storytelling. And I knew that I loved the romance of Sleeping Beauty and plates of time where people had lived their lives for centuries, one after the other. And I knew that if I could bottle that essence around a canvas that was gardens, it would be successful. I know you got to go. I've got to go. There are those who say they can't, they don't know how to trust their instincts. What's the fee? What do you get? Do you get a physical feeling when an instinct comes in and an impulse comes in that says you must act on this? Do you feel it somewhere in your solar plexus? Yes, okay. I do. I do. And the other thing I would say is one of my greatest stresses is when I'm given two choices and I don't actually care about either of them. I don't feel an instinct. It actually drives me nuts. So I have to walk away from them. Okay. You want this? No, I, I, trust your instincts. Yeah. Trust them. My dear friend, All I right. wish, wish so much you could walk through that screen and we could go and have a beer together. I would give a lot for that. Thank you so much. All right. Mwah. Speak mm -hmm. soon. Till okay. soon. Bye. All right. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.